You're listening to the Topco Business Unusual Podcast. Now, the Business Unusual Podcast. Learn from the greatest minds in business today. Interviews hosted by Ralph Fletcher. Learn how to improve business, get tips from industry leaders, and be motivated by real-life experience. Topco. Business Unusual. Welcome to uh, Topco Business Unusual podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ian Fur, the founder of Sorbet, also the Hatch Institute. It's obviously a massive uh, pleasure to have you on the podcast, Ian. I mean, your, your reputation sort of precedes you, you, all your successes. But, but I think that really probably where I wanted to start off is, is someone said to me, why don't we focus on, we focus on successes, but we don't focus on failures. And so maybe it's a good time to start and, and talk around uh, how you got to where, where you are now. Yeah. Some of those failures. Okay, great. Right, thanks very much, Ralph, and thanks for having me. Um, okay, failures is, you know, are definitely, for me, the path to success. I, I believe that every successful entrepreneur needs to fail at least once to be able to learn some serious messages about what not to do for next time. So I can give you an example. You know, the sorbet business in South Africa did it extremely well and we built it up to about 225 stores. So I decided, well, it was a natural thing to move into the UK market. And so we, we did a bit of homework and we, and we actually discovered that the environment of beauty salons in the UK was very similar to what it was in South Africa when we started. There wasn't a single beauty salon chain under, you know, under one brand in the whole of the UK. And that really surprised us. So we thought, okay, well, this is you know, like taking candy from a baby. <laughs> so, so we went over there with that sort of attitude. And I must say, uh, with a touch of arrogance as well, you know, um, with, you know, I always say that the success, you know, sometimes blinds you completely. And, and the only benefit or the only thing that you get from looking back at your past success is a stiff neck. Um, and, and I should never, you should never do that. So, so the arrogance, the arrogance that I had, I went there, I just assumed that we'd be able to build the same sort of chain as we did in South Africa. The market was, was there, it was open. There was very little professionalism in the general beauty salon arena. And uh, so we went off there and, and we really screwed it up quite badly. Um, so we, we, we opened up five stores over a period of about two and a half years. And then in the beginning of 19, 2019, we had to close them all. And we, we went into liquidation. And I, I came out of it a bit sore from the loss of the, of, of the money that we invested there, obviously. But also a little bit sore because the reputation was slightly damaged. But you just, you just dust yourself off. You come back and you start again. You know, that's, that's what failure is about. It's not how often you fail, it's how often you stand up and do it all again. And that's what the, the sort of real character of an entrepreneur is, I believe, to be able to go into something without fear. 
because if you're afraid to fail, you're almost guaranteed to fail because you're not going to do half the things as boldly as you should. And so, so you need to go in there. Now, I, I always say that, um, that entrepreneurs are a little bit like pioneers. You know, the old pioneer, you, you've watched a few old westerns in your time. And the pioneers are out there searching for new ground and new places to go and live. And they don't have a map. You know, there's no map. So you have to make your own map. You create your own map. And you don't know the dangers that lie around every corner. You're just going out there and you're doing it. So, you, you know, that, that's, what it, that's what an entrepreneur is. It's a pioneer. And then once you've created the map, the settlers arrive and they come along and they ask you for the map and then they go in after you. But the entrepreneur needs that, that intuition, the intuition mm. that says, I know this is right, even though I mm. don't have the evidence to prove it. It's funny about the UK. We, we also went to the UK and I would say probably failed miserably as well. We spent two years doing research with Cranfield on the best managed top UK companies. But I realized the business model was completely wrong. And we had great partners. We had the best partners, actually. But we just couldn't get the commercial side working in that business model. And if I look now, probably we've sort of almost updated ourselves 10 years later. We came back and sort of realized what the market was different. What, yes. what, I mean, what, what was the learnings that you took from, from going to the UK? Because I think there is, I mean, I look at so many people in South Africa on a personal level, they move overseas, you know, we know over the Elon Musk and that sort of thing. We've got a, a huge amount of talented people that go there and they really perform well as individuals if the structure's right. But there's so many organizations when they go overseas, the South African organizations really struggle to do well. It's not just the UK, it's Australia. And they, they seem to really bed down in South Africa the other way around. Correct. Yeah, so, so one of the things that we learned up front uh, was at the market that we assumed, you know what you do when you assume things. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, you make an answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we assumed the market was very similar to us. You know, it was middle class, uh, English speaking, you know, every woman loves beauty kind of assumptions. Um, so we, we couldn't understand how it couldn't work because also the, the competition as we saw it was, was very weak in our eyes. But what we didn't understand was the culture of the British woman and, and what they wanted. They weren't looking for something as sort of sophisticated and as clinical as a sorbet salon. They, they liked their sort of comfort in the, in the lazy armchair and have your pedicures. And we, we thought that's crazy. When they see what we've got to offer, they're going to come running in their thousands. Um, but they came running in their ones and twos, unfortunately. And, and so that didn't work too well. So, so it was really about not understanding the market and not, more importantly, not, not sort of pivoting quickly enough when we discovered that we were, that we hadn't hit the mark. We kept trying, thinking that eventually these people will understand why our offering is so much better than everyone else's. Uh, but that never happened. And so we should have changed a lot earlier in, in this thing. And that was one of the big lessons. I, I, I remember when I was, oh, must have been over 20 years ago now, I went to Indonesia for the first time with my brother to go surfing. Mm. And I think they all thought we were Australian. and they, I don't know if they like the Australians. Yeah. And um, they were kept on anything I went to, to buy, they kept on get, trying to negotiate price and like barter. 
And I was like, listen, just tell me the price. And I, I remember actually getting irritated with it and thinking, why aren't they changing? Like, I want to buy this way. That's what I'm used to in South Africa. Yes. Yes. Why am I not buying this way? And a couple of years later, I took my wife and she's half Chinese. So she looks almost Indonesian herself. And experience was completely the opposite, right? I think my mind shifted as well to, right, how, how do I now engage with them and have fun as opposed to leave me, you know, like, this is what I want. This is what I'm used to. So treat me like what I'm used to as opposed to enjoying yeah. the culture, enjoying yeah. the fun of it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I, mean, that's imp- I mean, that's important, right? Um, yeah. and, and, and obviously some of the failings um, growing up, I mean, did you always know that you were going to be an entrepreneur? I mean, was your household an entrepreneurial sort of household? When, when did you realize that that pioneer in you was entrepreneurship? Right. So my father was one of the founding directors of a furniture company called Russell Furnishes. And ah. he, yeah. And he was the one who introduced Joshua Dorr to South Africa, actually. Um, so, so, yeah, it, it started from him. My older brothers, you know, I got involved with them. And yeah, it was, it was definitely in the family. I, I was destined to be an entrepreneur. Well, I mean, I very successfully dropped out of university, so so that wasn't uh, there wasn't ever going to be an option that I was going to get a degree in and work something. I couldn't wait, so I left university and started our first business back in 1976. So, so I mean, it, it, it's interesting to listen to your family culture as well, and obviously, you know, you're Jewish, and you're saying that, uh, which I found really interesting, you're like the chosen nation. And then yeah. you went to the Air Force. Yeah. Right, yes, indeed. Yeah, so so, so I, I was born in Vanderbilt Park. Very briefly, I'll give you some of that history. And um, people often say to me, why, why were you born in Vanderbilt Park? I, um, I never could quite get that question. But the answer for me was because I wanted to be close to my mother. She was there at the time. And so we, but, but I left Jeff Vanderbilt when I was about four years old. And we moved to Joburg, and my parents put me in a Jewish school for reasons that I still have to determine. I'm not quite sure what they <laughs> because they weren't religious at all. Um, anyway, so the problem with going to a Jewish school is they only choose them. And uh, you, I didn't get to meet anybody else of any different race, culture, creed, nothing. So when you're in that type of environment, it's very easy for the powers that be to, to kind of manipulate your mind in in the best possible way, I can say that, but it was a manipulation. And uh, I, I was then taught to believe that we the Jews were the chosen people of God, which is cool, nice to know that we got chosen, not quite sure why or how, but at the time, being young and naive, it was very easy for me to take that on board. And so I left school ultimately thinking that I was pretty special. And of course, I was white as well. So, white superiority, Jewish superiority. I was, in my own mind, I was really top of the heap. But nevertheless, I went into the army at that stage, and uh, I met another group of people for the first time: Afrikaans-speaking Christian white males. Um, and I, I came in thinking I was chosen by God, but I can tell you for sure they didn't think so. And uh, they, they told me that, in fact, they were chosen by God. Um, so that caused a hell of a, of a dilemma for me. I was only 17 and a half years old at that point. And I had to ask them serious questions about, you know, 
who's doing the choosing here? And, uh, and why is he so confused? Um, and so I learned a very powerful lesson at that time. That said, there's no such thing as one group being a, a superior to another. We're all just different. And the yeah. sooner we accept and respect our differences, the better off we'd be. So that was a powerful lesson that I've carried with me all my life, basically. For sure. I mean, is there any is there any relevance in building that self-belief, though, to, you know, for parents and leaders to instill on people that, that self-belief, like you, you are great, you're amazing, um, not necessarily better than other people, but instilling some sort of value in themselves, the, the individual, no matter yes. where they're from, no matter what they're about. It's like you're amazing, you have the potential to do anything. I mean, how important is that sort of, that, that yes, mindset, I think, culture. I think that's very important indeed. You know, the encouragement and, and the self-belief. Because as soon as you start questioning your own ability, you start self-doubting and you lose your self-confidence, very difficult to do anything, quite frankly. So it's very important to instill that belief that you can do things. But as soon as it starts, you know, there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance. And yeah. when you cross that line, that's when the trouble starts and you start to believe that you, you know, you become a legend in your own mind. That's not true. Sure. So, I mean, I, I, I certainly want to talk about the Hatch Institute and get a little bit about Sorbet because that's quite interesting. I mean, you, you told me earlier that it was a family business. Yep. So I'm sure there's some couple of war, interesting war stories there. Um, yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, but I mean, the critical thing for me, and we spoke about this a little bit earlier, is that there are some people who sort of become entrepreneurs and some, sometimes they're lucky and sometimes they work really hard for it and they, and they do it once. And there's other people that maybe do it a second time. They sell out and they, and they set up a separate business that competes. And there's other people who do it multiple times over a different period and they go into different industries. And so, so for us, that's like, this is the most wonderful and amazing thing because what it's showing is that there's a track record of performance and, um, you know, there's, there's some secret source there. So I just want to go into that a little bit. I mean, if, yes. if, you know, if you, if you were going to start all over again or if you were a young entrepreneur or a young person, what were the things, what were the principles or the values that you would be making sure in any organization that you'd be doing? And is it transferable to some of these e-commerce and digital sort of platforms? Do you think these, it's, it's, sure. it's not just, yeah. Okay. So, so, you know, for me, there have been some really powerful lessons that I've learned along the way uh, that have run through all the various businesses I've been involved with. And, um, I think the one, the most powerful lesson I ever learned in business is that people don't come to work to make money. They come to work to serve the needs and wants of their customer. And if you get that right, then you'll make money. So I, I always believe very importantly that people and culture were the, the secret ingredients. And so, you know, throughout each of, of my various businesses, and I did change from one industry to another. I started out in retailing. I went into the music business. 
I then became a race relations consultant in the middle of nowhere. And then uh, I went into the beauty industry and each one of those was extremely different environments. But the beauty of going into a new industry and trying to start the whole thing all over again is that you go into a new industry with fresh iron. You don't, you're not contaminated by the conventional wisdom of that industry. You know, you're not told this works, that works, that doesn't work. You don't come with that. You come in with fresh eyes and you, you do things that uh, will disrupt the industry. And that was always the challenge for me. Now, the beauty industry certainly wasn't something that I was hankering after. You know, you take one look at me, you know that beauty is not my thing. Um, but, but, the, but the issue was that I, I, I had built up over the years a blueprint of a culture. And culture became my big thing. So culture, people, race relations became a huge thing for me. Uh, and, and this and leadership. So all of those things I put together into a culture blueprint. So when I started Sorbet, for example, I, I wasn't and I wasn't looking for a new idea that I could start a new business and then build a culture around it. I already had the culture. I knew exactly what my culture was going to be. All I needed was a new business to implement it. And that just turned out to be the beauty industry. Somebody said, why don't you look at the industry? And they told me that there were no beauty seller national chains. And that seemed like a hell of a challenge to me. And so, so off I went. And, and I mean, when you're disrupting these industries, because obviously you've got family, you've got colleagues, you've got advisors, you've got all these people who know better. <laughs> What's your secret for, do you just ignore them? Do, is it, do you have to like bring them into the decision-making process? How do you go about um, changing people's mindsets? How do you go about taking someone who doesn't believe something can happen and then demonstrating that it can and this is the way forward? When I told my family initially that I was going to start the beauty seller chain, my, my wife at the time said that she would book me an appointment with a psychologist and <laughs> discuss it after that. So, so yeah, it, was, it didn't, wasn't naturally well accepted in the family. My kids were still fairly young when I started out. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I think when people tell you it can't be done, that, that gets me excited. Yeah. Yeah, you can't yeah. do it. I was told by numerous people. You know, there are no beauty salon chains in the country because it's too difficult to create any kind of consistency across the country when it comes to such a specialized kind of service. And yeah. so that was the challenge. And the only way to do that was through starting out with a strong culture. So from day one, I did all the induction training for every single person that ever joined Solvay. They would come to me and they spend a day with me in groups of 30, 40, up to 70, 80 later on in the, in the day, just to get the philosophy and the understanding. What was our purpose? What were our core values? What did we believe in? How did we live the values? And most importantly, what were we doing to create a superior customer service? And, and through the process, uh, you know, one starts to realize the incredible connection, if I can call it that, between culture and service. If you cannot create a strong culture, highly unlikely you'll deliver a great service. So I always say that 
the, the customer experience will never be better than the staff experience. So I focused enormously on the culture of the business. I, you know, as a CEO, somebody asked me the other day, how much time did you spend on culture when you were running Sorbet? And I, I've kind of worked it out more or less very roughly, but about half my time was spent on culture. Yeah. And that's a hell of a lot more than most CEOs spend on culture. For sure. I mean, they say that, you know, that that's part of your job is that culture side of things. What, what yes. would you say are the things that, that are driving that? Because obviously, you know, we talk about race relations yes. and you're talking around some of the, the, the incidents of people's backgrounds, which um, many people aren't taking consideration. And so you've got yeah. that challenge, right? You've got to change yes. mindsets, change belief systems, bring people together in, in a common yes. unified way. What did you find, and you've done it through multiple industries and over a long period of time, what, yes. what would you say are the, the, the hallmarks for success of that are? What, what are the, the principles that you think CEOs need to adopt if they're going to passionately pursue that? Right. So if, if you want to build a strong culture, the most important thing that you have to do from the outset is get people to understand why they actually come to work. Because most people will say, I come to make money. I've come to earn a salary. And we say, no, 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 you don't come to make money. You come to touch people's lives. That was our purpose. You come to touch people's lives and make them feel good. And if you make them feel good, there's a pretty good chance they'll come back and then you'll earn money. So it was always about putting service before reward, whereas most people always put reward first. I want the money. That's why I come to work. And, and we say, no, 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 the money only comes when you serve well. If you don't serve well, then you don't deserve the money. And so that was the philosophy, the underlying philosophy of everything we ever did. Getting people like beauty therapists and nail technicians and hairdressers to understand that the purpose of work was to make the clients feel good. And, and that, that paradigm shift was essentially, in my view, what created the, the Sorbet culture, which we used to, we had a name for that call it the soul of sorbet. And, and so the soul of sorbet become an integral part of our business strategy. We even had a soul of sorbet manager that was involved full time in just keeping the culture alive, you know, and, and, and making sure that everybody was on board. So, so that alignment, alignment of people and purpose. So what do the customers want from us? They want to feel good. What do we want to do? We want to make them feel good. So aligning our purpose with the, with the needs of the customer was the key to that. And then we, we get people to understand, okay, um, you know, this is what I'm here to do. I'm here to make people feel good. And then, and, and then it rolls from there. Then if you had to ask me what was the single biggest competitive advantage that we had at Solvay and what allowed us to build a chain of 225-odd outlets, um, it would have been the attitude of our staff. The attitude Amazing. of our staff was by far our biggest single competitive advantage. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I've watched. Uh, you know, I've done. I've done my research, so I've seen that that is, and it is is exceptional what you've done. And I think it's really fascinating, and it's so important. Um, I think. Look, for us as a business, we struggled for probably four or five years. You know, I think people say the word find your purpose. And, and it took us four or five years to even unpack a purpose value proposition. You know, ours is to inspire the world uh, to do good business. 
Um, that's what we believe. We believe that doing good business and inspiring a world to do that through these sort of conversations yes. um, is important. And what you're doing is, is a similar thing. You're inspiring the world to do good business, which is looking after your people and then they will look after your customers, essentially. And another big thing with you is the servant leadership. And so yes. it's quite funny because I had a conversation with one of our customers the other day and they're saying that they help about 300 businesses through COVID. And what they realized is that there was those industries or businesses that couldn't cope with COVID that naturally couldn't operate. And there was those that sort of could operate and, and they looked at the recovery. And what they saw is this, this sort of paradigm, like one group was accelerated straight back into success and the other group kept on faltering along. And then they, they do personality profiles of the leadership. Yes. And they found the one single contributing factor to those that got back up quickly was servant leadership yes 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 indeed versus, okay, so versus authoritarian yes all right so servant leadership falls under what we call now attach we call it culture-driven leadership but but servant leadership is a really important part of that and servant leadership really is about the you know shifting the paradigm away from the power-based top-down heavy-handed leadership that we have become accustomed to in South Africa, uh, which is based on your position and in the hierarchy. And, and so servant leadership is not so much about your position and, and your power base. It's more about what we call the moral authority to lead. Uh, so it's not a power-based authority, it's a moral authority. The moral authority to lead comes from earning the right to lead, not being given you need to earn it from your staff. And some of the things that go into that are things like, um, you know, trust and respect, earning that of, of your people, um, a genuine concern for their well-being, making sure that you, you, you want to help them and, and grow them as individuals, um, a, a strong commitment to training and development and growth skills and knowledge, and also creating a place of safety where people can feel free to speak without fear. So, you know, those are just a few of the key things that help you become a servant leader. Where, where in, the, in traditional companies you would have the, the employee would be facing the manager because they wanted to keep the manager happy because the manager always had control of their destiny and their salary and their promotions and all of that. And they would often turn their back on the customers. And so servant leadership actually turns that around. And we call it serving the people who are serving the people. And that's really essentially what servant leadership is. And it's a very powerful tool. A lot of South African managers and leaders are a little bit uncomfortable with it. They can't understand how you can be a servant and a leader at the same time. Uh, and it seems to them like you're giving your power away. But in actual fact, you are taking the power because you've earned the right to lead. You're not just given it. And that's really a summary of what servant leadership is about. It's really cool. And, and I listened to that, that TED talk of yours in Joburg, and I think you've got right. the slides that sort of show it. It's like Because when you're saying yes. serving the manager, they're back. It's quite good graphically how you explain it, and, and that was really cool. But I mean, I, I read um, Ricardo Semler's book, Maverick, many years ago, yes. and it was a very similar type of thing. There was 
like he had a parking lot and then whoever came in first got the best parking versus the manager. And then the staff chose what uh, clothing they would wear. Yeah. Um, if it was going to be overalls or not or whatever. So it was very, I think in the end, he even cho- they chose the, the CEO. So he, they actually appointed somebody else and they sort of, I don't know, fired him or let him go. And um, he was okay yeah. with that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a yeah, fantastic book. I remember being very excited when I read that book. Very stimulated. So, I was going to say, I mean, you've written two books. I don't know if... Mm-hmm. Yes. But, but but I mean, how important is reading? And and did you get a lot of inspiration from other organizations internationally? I mean, is that one of the things that sort of helped create this innovation and this understanding? Well, look, I, I've been reading uh, all my life. I only have ever read business books. I've never read novels. I should Same. Maybe, maybe <laughs> I finally retire. And, I nearly retired after Sorbet. I retired for an afternoon nap, and then I decided that we need to carry on. Um, but, but the, you know, as far as books are concerned, I've learned a fortune from books. Fortune. Um, you know, one, I mean, some of the key books were things like um, Simon Sinek's, um, yeah. you know, about the why, find your yeah. why. All, you know, there were some books that really helped me to understand what needed to be done. There's a great book at the moment where I finished reading fairly recently called Trailblazer, written by the CEO of, of uh, Salesforce in America, Mark Benioff. Yeah. Also very yeah. focused on culture. Now, there's some great books out there. Um, Brene Brown, uh, yeah. a book called, called Dare to Lead. It's fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah, so the books that I've, I've written, the first one was really about my entrepreneurial journey. That's my life story, basically. And the second one was what we call the Song of Sorbet, which was that how we built the culture there at Sorbet. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it, it's so interesting. And I mean, do you see these examples of, of that in South Africa? Because obviously we keep on going to these international examples. You won. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you gave a couple of examples as well, which I really loved about you know, you know, your brother was looking to buy a new car. Yes. Um, and, and those sorts of things, and then choosing managers for your your shops. But I mean, are you seeing anyone in South Africa or Africa who's sort of emulating that sort of leadership, that servant leadership? Certainly not in the big corporates, that's for sure. But uh, but there are a lot of young startups and, and techs, uh, tech companies that are starting to look at that kind of thing. So so yeah, I think that's where it's happening. You know, in the new sort of digital world at the moment, I think there's a fair amount of that. Although even there, sometimes they get so carried away with their with their concepts and their ideas, and they focus everything on that, which I suppose is understandable. But then halfway down, and as the business starts growing, they they realise, oh hell, you know, we don't have a culture. We're just employing people. There's nothing here, and then they have to go back. So my, my advice to startups is to build your culture from day one, have it in mind, have it in place, know what you want, know what your purpose is, know what your values are going to be, and then allow the business to grow with the culture as opposed to having to try and sort of go back later on down the line and rebuild whatever culture happened to just grow by itself. 
Sure. Did, did you ever read that book by Tony Shea, Delivering Happiness? He was yes. a Zappos CEO. Because he talked about that, right? He sold to Microsoft. Yes, and a fantastic book also. Brilliant, brilliant book. Brilliant, uh, brilliant book, eh? Yeah. So customer service has always been a major passion. In a, at Sorbet, we, we broke a lot of rules about uh, customer service in, uh, in beauty salons. For example, we had our promise up on the wall that said, if you're not happy with your treatment, you don't have to pay. And uh, I mean, I've traveled the world, when I was a tour, I traveled the world looking at beauty salons, looking for ideas and that. And I never came across a single salon anywhere in the world that had that sign up. And so we, we were doing some things that were, that were quite different. And uh, I think differentiation became the name of the game. And so, you know, I think we, we, it helped us to build loyalty and, and credibility amongst our, our client base. We call them the guests um, of Solvay. I noticed that. I, you've got the guests, the community, you've got the yes. soul of Solvay. And I was thinking you've got all these rad names. That you, I mean, is that purposeful? Is that, is, that, is, yes. is that quite important for you to create your own, like, language, your, your yes. inner, like, sanctum, like, the people who are part of it? Right, absolutely. And and there's no great like, rocket science in that. It's just really about differentiation. You know, we, we wanted to be different in every single thing we did because we knew we couldn't always be better. You know, we, we, we couldn't go out there and say we are, we deliver the best facials in the country because... Or cheapest or... Yeah, that's, that's, that's nonsense. You know, we, we just wanted to be different. And, yeah. You know, we deliver great facials and if you're not happy, don't pay. Yeah, that, that's that's was the difference. Rather than saying we're the best, you know, we deliver the best. Way. So I'm I'm wondering, right? You had these opportunities. You sold for you know uh, good values, and yeah. you had this opportunity to retire. And so what, what's 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 motivating you? The, the one side, but then also <laughs> is it is it that you see? Because but also when I travel, I, I'm I'm quite impressed. I don't know if it's they're overzealous, but the Americans seem to have a really strong focus on customer service, where I see in South Africa, it's not the same impact. And, and we're going to go maybe into it with like the Hatch Institute and talk around, you know, where's that coming from, that yeah. that desire to serve and is the environment right to allow that to happen? But I mean, what's driving you, what's motivating you to not retire, to keep on going? It's the second time now. <laughs> it's not the well, no, it's, well, in fact, it's the third time. So, so, third um, time. <laughs> yeah, so, so, you know, after we sold Solvay, my family said, well, you know, maybe it's time for you to slow down a bit. And I, I did think about that for about a minute and a half. And, and then I, I decided, no, you know, I, I'm, too, I'm too young. I'm only 67. Uh, and so I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm too young to retire. Ian, <laughs> but Ian, there, there was the guys that get smarter. They sold for a lot of money, like 1.5 billion, 100 million dollars. Mm. They sold for, and they both carried on doing mel not one business, multiple businesses. And they yeah. said to me, Ralph, it's it's BS. The lie everybody's told make a business, sell it, make lots of money and retire happily and do nothing. It's absolute BS. It's just not the way people are coded. Is that, yeah. do you find that as well? Do you think that story of like build and sell to retire yeah. is something people need to get past almost? 
Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, everyone's different, but, but my passion was always building businesses, never running them. So, so as soon as, as, soon as Sorbet got too big, or, or even the other ones before, got too big and became, you know, by the time that I left Sorbet, the, 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 the national turnover of the group was over a billion rand. And, and that's, that is not really, that's not my strength. I, I can't run a big business like that. I've never had the skills, either operational or financial, to be able to run a business of that size. So for me, it's like, okay, well, that's, now we've done this. Now we, we find something else and, and start again. So that's when I really get stimulated is startups. You know, I've never bought a business. I always only want to start it from scratch. And, and that's what really drives me and stimulates me. So I'll never give up until I, you know, perhaps I'll stop when I literally fall over. But uh, for now, I will just keep I've got, I've, got, I've got that feeling, right? So, I mean... <laughs> There's obviously also a lot of people like you. I think my father's very similar. Started so many businesses. Where, where, where do you know? Because I think what's different though is that you've started and then you've sold them on. Yes. And so you've exited in a way, in a profitable way for both parties. Everybody's winning, right? So there's that transition from the startup, the excitement, the, the differentiator, the ideas, going through that hard process of getting traction and then suddenly you realize hold a second is some of these things that I want to pass on now what what's the what's the thinking or what's the process in getting those other people on board or choosing those other people to take on some of these this more leadership problems or challenges that the organization faces the expertise right so as, as you grow I, I think I think you want to you know, in terms of when you're still running the business, and it's getting big. You just want to get the right expertise and the right experience into the. You know, we we call it having the right bums on the right seats uh, yeah. on, on the bus. You know, we have got this bus and it's just going downhill fast. You want to make sure that you want to get. <laughs> if you want to make it work, you got to have the right bums on the right seats, and and that's essentially. And and if it's not the right bum, then there's a bus stop on the left where you can get it. And, and, and so that, that's really, we, we were always very, very fixated, especially on the family side. So we had a family business. All three of my children were running Sorbet with me. And in fact, that they, there were also a couple of other people as well. But the three family members, you know, really had senior roles to play. So my son ran the operational side. He looked after about 180 of the stores. Wow. Um, his twin sister was the group marketing manager uh, of, of the whole group. She built the Sorbet brand. And then the younger sister was the brand manager looking after the franchisees for the marketing, advertising, whatever. So they all had very key roles. And so uh, that was really exciting. And, and, and people, you know, you mentioned earlier on horror stories. I, I must really tell you, Ralph, I've never had a horror story with my kids. Okay. Was one of those. It was almost a fantasy. Hard to believe how well we got on. You know, each one of us had their own area of, of expertise and of business, and we hardly clashed. There were very, very few clashes. You know. My daughter. And, and why do you think that is? Um, why yeah, why I, do you think that is? I mean, what do you think you did? Yeah, well, I don't really think I did anything. I, I was just damn lucky, I think. You know, it worked out well <laughs> that each of them had this really good uh, skill. You know, my, 
In fact, my daughter has become quite a guru on marketing and branding, and she does a lot of lectures and workshops and stuff now. And she was asked once in an interview, you know, why do you work for your father? And she said, well, I worked out that it's a hell of a lot better to work for my father than for someone else's father. And, and that, that, was, that was her little answer. To, she couldn't see any benefit in working for somebody else's father. So. Must have been. You must feel uh, very honoured and privileged to have your kids working with you. Um, yeah, it was, it was perhaps the most rewarding thing I've ever had in my business life ever, just to watch yeah. them grow, take on those responsibilities, and then for all of us to exit, you know, together and 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 to to share the spoils, as it were. Amazing. So, I mean, I just want to pivot to the Hatch Institute a little bit because I know that you know. You know, we talk about how do we how, how do we take advantage of these opportunities that COVID's brought us, and how do organisations pivot and change, but with their people and and put our people first and our customers, and our people drive those relationships with our customers. But and we have some big organisations in South Africa that are productive, they're doing well, and you know have great reputations. How, yes. how do you see the Hatch Institute helping them in terms of things like race relations? How do you actually see the that they can get it better. Maybe they got it okay, but how can they get it better? Right, okay. So so there's a whole story around it. I, I think the first thing is to say that Hatch was born out of all of the work that I've done over the years, particularly in the area of culture, people, and race relations and leadership. So so it was born out of that. We, we, we have a, a, I've developed a concept called culture nearing, uh, which is the the engineering of a culture, I suppose. And, and the definition of that is building a strong culture in a diverse and sometimes polarized workforce, which lays the platform for obsessive customer service. So it's the connection, once again, between culture and service. So, so culture-nearing is just that. So in order to, to, to understand what it is that we try and do for companies, we, we need to understand, firstly, that we're living in South Africa and we have a highly volatile and complex socio-political environment. I don't have to tell you that. You, you will know that very, very well. And, and there are certain skills that are required to navigate that. You know, we, we never get taught. We get taught leadership skills. We go to leadership courses, and that's all pretty good. But nobody ever teaches us how to deal with racism in the workplace. Nobody ever teaches us how to deal with gender and sexual harassment and, and all of the other things that go on in companies that, that come from the outside, the baggage that people bring with them. We have this highly diverse environment and each one of the different race groups come from a different environment. They come with their own baggage, their own history, their own belief systems, their own value systems. And then they all come into the workplace and somehow, by some miracle, we expect it all to work well, you know, and to get on with each other and then just to go out there and, and let it all happen, which is at best naive and at worst yeah. you know, irresponsible. So... So we do need to understand that. That's the first thing, that we, that we have an environment that is conducive to polarization, not to, yeah. not to common purpose. So yeah. we have to work on that. And then within that, we work on the, on the personal development side, that you know, 
somebody who's running a business needs to understand that they can't transform a culture or transform anybody for that matter if they don't know how to transform themselves. If they don't look at themselves and understand how they are standing in the way of transformation and progress. Mm. So, you know, that, that's a really important element of it. And, and sometimes we miss that. You know, we, we develop leaders on how to lead other people, but we don't actually help them to transform themselves and to earn the respect of those other people that they're now trying to manage. So that's one of the things. The other thing is what we call culture-driven leadership. I've spoken about that, and that includes servant leadership, moral authority. And then the whole thing comes down to what we call community building. The community building is essentially about developing relationships within the organization across all the diverse groups and making sure or trying at least to create a sense of belonging in the company where everybody yeah. feels they belong regardless of their background, the way they look, the way they dress, the way they speak, et cetera, et cetera. And then from that, we can hopefully create a common purpose of service and, 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 and you know, with core values and a reason for being, et cetera, et cetera. So when it comes to race relations, we need to have the uncomfortable conversations. Mm. A lot of people in South Africa, probably mostly white people, have very little idea, interestingly enough, the, of the true history of this country. They don't really know the extent of the social injustice and the social engineering that took place and how you know, a country was literally stolen from the people that lived here uh, and the education was taken away citizenship was taken away. Somebody living in Soweto, for example, was not a South African citizen under the apartheid regime. They, they were some, you know, they were a citizen of some homeland somewhere. Uh, even though they were living in South Africa, they weren't South African citizens. Uh, and so a lot of that information we, we share with people now so that they truly understand how we got ourselves into the mess that we're in at the moment. Some companies say, no, well, let's just put our past behind us and move on. But that is really not going to work. Really not. Well, that's been, they've been doing that for 26 years, in all fairness. Exactly. And, that and it hasn't work. worked. It's not going away. The problem is no. not going away. It's, it's uh, the underbelly's not happy. I mean, so, so we got this challenge, right? And it's really real in South Africa. It's probably real all over the world, to be fair. But it's yeah. obviously heightened here because of the laws and the injustices from the past, where it's more probably... You know, out of out of habits, I mean, the prejudices. Yes. How do we fix it? I mean, how do we, like you say, have this building, community building? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and you talk about this awareness and wanting to change. Some people aren't even aware, firstly, that they need to change, that this is the problem. They're just sweeping under the carpet and they keep on blaming the government or blaming yes. other things. Or like you said, it's time to move on now. In fact... Yes they're not actually dealing with the critical issue right in front of them. Um, you know, like Jim Collins says, you know, deal with the, the, the real issues, the critical issues in front of you. Well, <laughs> okay. Well, I think, I think you've described it pretty well, enough, actually, that, that whole scenario. And, and that's exactly what's going on is we, we, we just don't want to face it. And we say it's not our, 
a problem. Don't blame me for the sins of my fathers. All of that stuff, you know. What is white privilege? I'm not privileged, but you are privileged. And, and, and the reality is that even though you were not a perpetrator, you are a beneficiary. And, and so, you know, the beneficiaries have, have, have taken the, the, you know, the cream, as it were. And so things like black economic empowerment, you know, are absolutely critical in this country. Now, people don't like it. And certainly the way it's been implemented has been a shambles and a, and a disgrace in my, in my view. But the, the principle, the concept of black economic empowerment is absolutely correct. Because when you have a massive imbalance that has been, been created by a system of racism and discrimination and oppression and brutality, then in order to fix that, you have to redress. You can't just say, okay, you know, we, we're done with that. Let's move on now. And from now on, everyone's going to be equal. That's just rubbish because there's no equality in South Africa at the moment, certainly not for the masses. Who haven't experienced much of the benefit of black economic empowerment, unfortunately. So we, we need to do that. And the only way we can really do that effectively, and I know it's a, it's a long, hard process, is to shift the mindsets of people, to open their minds. At the moment, there's an enormous amount of hopelessness in South Africa. People are hopeless. They don't know, they can't see any sort of future that's bright. And so we need to do something about that. We need to start creating an environment where people can be a bit more hopeful. And the only way to do that is to shift the mindsets of the people, even if we do it one by one, is, is we've, got to, we've got to get people to open their minds, understand the complexity of the problem, and then do something and, and, and compromise where necessary. If we don't compromise, the status quo is not going to change. We're going to have the same inequality just carrying on and on and on. So unless we do something differently, you know, I, I, I shudder to think where this country is going. Because eventually, you know, some of the people are going to get this, and they're Afrikaans are going to get full of being, of being poor. And, and, uh, marginalized. And marginalized and say, enough's enough. And we remember the French Revolution. We remember the Russian Revolution. Yeah. So, so, you know, we, we need to try and equalize the status quo and create a level playing field. And it's very difficult after 300 years of, of inequality. But, you know, we, we do something. We can't just wait for the government, because as we know, that's not really a, a you know, yeah. you know hope, hope is not a good solution uh, in, in terms of that, waiting for people to come along and do something positive. We, so we're going to do it one at a time. That's what I do. And, 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 I mean, let's say I'm, you know, like, like, let's say it's Topco, for instance, and we've got a whole team of people here. I mean, what, what are the sort of things that we should be doing to bring about this community engagement? I mean, is it, do I bring people together? Do I talk yeah. to one person at a time? Is it me as the leader that should be doing that? Is it the leaders in the company, the different managers who are leading to talk? You know, it, it, is it a weekly forum that we gets created? What are, what are the, some of the actionable things that people can actually start to do to have this dialogue? And, and is it a dialogue or is, it, is there some outcomes that you think are required? Right. Okay. So it's a really good question. Um, we, we need to do all of the above, essentially. So, so 
<laughs> so what what we have to start off is we need to educate ourselves. We need education. Yeah. We need to unpack what we're dealing with. We can never solve a yeah. problem if we don't know what the problem is. So so that's yeah. the first thing. And 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 then we do it individually. We do it one on one with particular leadership, mm-hmm. and we do it in groups. So yeah. we've got a race relations course where we get fifteen twenty people together, either virtually or in person. And we, we, we discuss these, what we call the difficult and uncomfortable conversations, bearing in mind that change never happens from a position of comfort. Yeah. Change, change only really happens when you're out of, outside of your comfort zone. And these conversations yeah. take people outside of their comfort zone. So it's difficult sometimes, wow. it's quite emotional and it's quite stressful. But, you know, you you have to poke the bear. And you can't just prod the bear. You've got to give the bear a good club so that he, he wakes up properly, you know, and, and then you've got to slap his face. It's like a, an awake session. Yes. It's like an awakening an session. An awakening, <laughs> that's what it is. And people start to realize. And, and then you have all kinds of reactions to that. You have a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, um, and, and a lot of anger, you know, from, from both sides. So... So it's a, it's a kind of a challenging environment, but to me, it's the only way that we can get people to start shifting their paradigms and their mindsets about race and culture. Have you seen any impact so far? I mean, you talk about it being like not a quick fix, and it's, it's quite obvious to us as well, tracking transformation in the last 20 years, that it's a journey, right? And yes, there is. I mean, we, we can see it within our clients, you know, the, the those companies who are courageous enough to, to address these things, because not yeah. all of them are, um, yeah. you know, we, we've seen, we, we definitely see results. And, and we've seen it particularly in, you know, with blue collar workers, where, where the yeah. companies and factories and warehouses and stuff like that, where people are working. And, and, and it's possible. There's, there's no question in my mind that it's possible to change cultures and to shift the, the, the thinking from one thing to another. And, uh, you know, that's what we did in all my own businesses. When we started out Sorbet, um, just to give you an idea, I was invited right at the beginning, 2004, when I was still kind of researching the business, I was invited by one of our suppliers, a skincare supplier, to come to a launch of a new product. And so I, I went there on my own. Uh, you know, the old white guy, old white fraud. I think people, you know, all the young women there were, were quite uh, were quite scared of being looked like some sort of a pervert uh, hanging around the young girls. And so I, 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 I discovered that, that to my surprise, particularly having worked with black people for most of my life, um, that all the beauty therapists, the skincare therapists, they were white, and the owners of the salons were all white. And I went up to the company manager and I said, you know, what's going on here? We're, we're the black people, you know? Was there like a transport problem? Uh, was there like a taxi strike? Where, where are they, you know? And she said, no, there aren't any. So what do you mean? She said, well, you know, our, our product is an upmarket product. It's only bought by white people at this point. And so the, those white people only want white therapists. They don't want black therapists touching their skin. And I, I was shocked to my core about that. And, and I must say that night, I, I remember very clearly thinking to myself, 
we're going to change this. We're going to change the face of this industry. And and if I look back, it's probably one of the most rewarding things that, that we did at Sorbet. You know, we reversed it from about 5% black to 95% black. And, and, uh, and, and with it, the business became very successful. So, so you know, we, we just have to challenge the status quo and keep challenging it all the time. That's the only way we're going to do this. Sure. There's so many questions I want to ask, but I mean, maybe I want to just um, sort of settle on the future. Um, you know, um, where, where do you see the future for South Africa and Africa um, as an entrepreneur? You know, we, we, we have the president and the, the government suggesting that we, you know, create more jobs. My sort of view is how do we rather try and create more entrepreneurs who inadvertently create more jobs? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, looking at, you know, you, you went to the UK, you sort of came back again and, and you know, sort of did very, very well in South Africa. What do you? What are your sense? You didn't. You didn't go into the rest of Africa, or you see that as a as a big opportunity. Yeah, I mean, we we did see it as an opportunity, but it, it was never really at the forefront because we were so busy building South Africa that we we didn't get to that. But I'm sure the new owners at some point in time will will look at the rest of Africa. It was always on the radar, but we just got so caught up. We were opening 30, 35 stores a year. And so it was quite a challenge to get it all done. Um, well done. So, right. So as far as South Africa is concerned, as I said, we need to create an environment of hope. That's what we have, because there's a lot of negativity around at the moment, a lot of hopelessness and uh, not much sort of of a future in many people's minds. And I think that's what we're going to do. And the only way to do that, as I said earlier on, is to get people to open their minds to change. And to realize the need for change. And, and that's, I, I, I believe in this country. That's why I do what I do. Uh, I haven't given up on the place yet. That's for sure. Love this country. For sure. And, and I mean, lastly, I mean, part of your, your growth was through using the franchising model. And it wasn't initially, but you sort of bumped into it and then you had this explosive growth. Yes. And I mean, how do you feel about franchising in South Africa? And should, should there be more organizations looking at franchising? Are there more entrepreneurs who should be looking at owning a franchise? I mean, what's your general your general yeah. sense on? Okay, so franchising, in, a, in terms of Sorbet, by the way, we did want a franchise from the beginning, but we couldn't get anybody interested. It took us four and a half <laughs> years, four and a half years to, to <laughs> franchise. So, you know, and once that, and, and we had to open 22 company stores in the meantime before we got there which was a, a real burden. Um, but the thing is, I think what, what, what entrepreneurs, if you want to be an entrepreneur, a true entrepreneur, franchising is not for you. In, ter- in terms of being a franchisee, being a franchisor, definitely. Franchisee, yeah. because the rules, they're very strict rules to being a franchisee. So you don't have a lot of scope for entrepreneurship and creativity and innovation. You've got to play within the rules. But if you're looking to build your own business and franchising is a fantastic model. You know, not everybody, not all franchisees, I mean franchisors, sorry, love franchising because it can be difficult. You get difficult franchisees that they want to start doing their own thing and it can get awkward. 
But for us, franchising was absolutely beautiful. We, we didn't want to own a single company still. After we, sold, after we sold 22 of our company stores, we never opened another one. And so it was always going to be fun. And yeah, it worked well. It worked very well. But there's, there are challenges, but the challenges in everything that you do. You know, there's no, no easy walk to freedom. For sure. It, it has been an honor speaking to you, and it's really been amazing. Thank you so much for your time. We wish you the best of luck with the Hatch Institute. Hopefully, we'll get you involved with like in Pumalelo and, and top, top Empowerment. But it was really great meeting you and catching up. So thanks so much for your time. Fantastic. Thank you very much for having me, Ralph. Appreciate it. Pleasure.